welcome. Especially if you cycled. <laughs> Who cycled tonight? Oh. You go straight to heaven, let's uh, <laughs> But not yet. Uh, when, when I was a teenager, I went to a school in Kenya where we used to sing the national anthem every week. And in the African context, the sense of the significance of creation in relation to God and the spiritual world was very real. The connections were almost palpable. And the first line or so of the Kenyan national anthem is as follows. O God of all creation, bless this our land and nation. So the starting point for that nation in relation to God is that sense of the creator God and God's presence in all things and God's involvement in everything that is to do with human life and creation and his presence. So let's pray to that God now. Lord, we thank you that through our Lord Jesus Christ, we know you as Father, the Father who creates the world. And we thank you that by your Spirit, you have drawn us to yourself and brought us close. We pray that as we listen to Ruth tonight, as we reflect on our own lives, and as we consider our responsibility for this world, you would speak to each one of us and help us to gird up our loins and do something about it all. Amen. Boris Johnson seems to be in a very interesting sort of debate with himself and with other people. We have heard in the past him negotiating with Corbyn's brother. Have you heard this? Negotiating with him about whether there's a new ice age on the way. On the other hand, and on the other extreme, of course, he's um, having a struggle with Trump, the climate denier. So Boris Johnson, believe it or not, might be on our side. Because I think he wants to do something about the planetary question and the future of our world. And he needs people like us to stand up and be counted. And to say, because of our commitments and our faith, we will live differently. We will support whatever you do, our leaders, in relation to your governmental responsibility for the planet. It's fantastic to have Ruth here tonight. Ruth, thank you so much. I'm sure you will be, where are you? Oh, there you are. You will be going to so many meetings like this, but we've got you early and it's great. And I know you won't be talking about your book, but here it is. And if you want to buy it, it's at the back. There are limited copies available. And there's a book that Ruth wrote before that that's all about how you make a difference practically, how you live. So if you can't get the one, buy the other. Ruth will say what she wants to say about her own particular take for tonight later on. But this book is going to, I think, have an impact on the life of the church because it's the Lent book for this year, the Archbishop of Canterbury will be pushing it. I think many bishops will be supporting it, and I think many parishes and priests will be discussing it. But what we really want to see is not good discussions, Anglican explorations, but practical change lives. 
So let's see what happens. Just a few other things. I don't want to take up Ruth's time, but one or two things that I probably need to emphasize. In relation to living differently, Live Lent is coming out this year focused on this theme. And there are going to be booklets available for that. So if, you, if you're a bit late in setting your Lent course, or if you haven't quite decided what you're going to do to live differently, try looking at these booklets. And um, they're available from the Church of England's various outlets. And I think we may even have some tonight. We don't have any tonight. Madeline's telling me not. We don't. But you know where to get them, I think, somewhere, to do with the Church of England. On the website. Ruth will say more about this. Um, you, you know we're trying in this diocese. We are a, a, a bronze level green diocese. Do you know, we almost invented this scheme that Arosha then used and made it better. It's time we pulled our socks up. We want to go from bronze to silver to gold. And that means that more percent, the higher percentage of parishes that change the way they live and act, the, the, the better our pu public image will be. But more importantly, the better our impact in relation to the environment will be as well. So let's also make this part of our commitment to change our diocese to become one of those green dioceses that's making a difference and uh, holding out some sort of alternative future. Also, if you'd like to take part in the Bishop's Commission for Mission on the Environment, please consider doing that. Our environmental group that's uh, engaged with this diocese and also with Salisbury Diocese will be helping us to run that. It will be led by people who are committed and what we want is just a lot more people to get involved and to influence other people and make a difference. So think about taking that training, a BCM in the environment, and then you can do it and I'll see you in the cathedral. We've got hundreds of people doing all sorts of courses. This is a new one. So there'll be a pilot that we'll launch for about 20. If you want to be part of those who pilot this program, then please um, think about joining up. And if you want to talk to Mark, who's here on the front row, please come talk with him. If you can't get to him because there's so many people wanting to do it, talk to Maddie and she'll take your name. And Maddie's at the back uh, near the books. Um, our environmental group, if you'd like to be involved in that group, then on your seats is an opportunity to sign up and to share your information, if you're willing, your personal information with that group, and then get drawn into their commitments and their activities. So if you'd like to do that, I would be delighted. And whilst I'm up here talking about getting involved with these sorts of things, we're looking for a new advisor for the diocese on environmental matters, a bishop's advisor. Is God calling you tonight? To do that. Maybe after you've heard Ruth, you will feel the Lord stirring you up. And if there are more than one, great, we'll have lots, lots of advisors. If you're willing to help make all this happen and to encourage groups around the diocese, that'd be fantastic. Lastly, Ruth will be talking about her book somewhere else, possibly at the cathedral. So if you want more and if you want to hear another angle, then you can go again and hear Ruth at the cathedral. And that's going to be on the 7th of April. I think that's all I need to say. And uh, Ruth, over to you. Thank you for coming. I won't waste more time by telling everybody who you are, except to say it's wonderful to have you here. And thank you so much for your commitment to this diocese and helping us along the way. Thanks for coming.
Wonderful. Good evening. It's fantastic to be here. And I, I'm just so impressed that you've all turned out this evening and battled through the elements and didn't decide to hide indoors with the wind and the rain battering down your houses. So thank you ever so much for coming out this evening and coming to support this event. And Bishop Tim, thank you so much for what you've just said. It's been a real pleasure over the years to walk in different ways with the diocese here and to help with the eco-church and eco-diocese and come to a few different events over the years and um, spoken here a few times. So it almost feels like home as a diocese. So thank you very much. And it's lovely to be here again. And... As you just heard, I'm not specifically this evening talking about the Archbishop's Lent book because I'm going to be doing a lecture on that at the cathedral in Holy Week. And at that event, I'm going to look much more at the book and unpack it and go through the different themes and explore the book more. I might touch on it this evening, but not so much. So do come along. In, in April to the cathedral to that event if you'd like to hear more about the book specifically. So just to tell you a little bit about myself, I come from Chichester and live there with my family and for many years was involved with Arosha and then for the last nearly three years have been working with Tear Fund as their global advocacy and influencing director, which is a ridiculous title, isn't it? But it oversees a range of work around Tear Fund's theology and our advocacy work, also the media team sits in my group, and the focus really is on theological envisioning for churches in this country, but, um, but in many ways, more importantly, around the world in the countries that we work into, and then also advocacy work, looking at the big issues that cause poverty, and focusing on governments and businesses and global institutions, and looking to bring about change. There's a whole range of amazing work that happens from the different teams that are in the group that I oversee. And it's an incredible privilege. I don't do very much. I just mostly try and get out of their way so that they can do their work. I sometimes think of the sports curling, you know. I don't, it is a sport, isn't it, officially? And, you know, you have someone out the front with the brooms uh, making the, the ice smooth and I sometimes think that's my job to be out there with the broom making it smooth so that everybody else who's doing the really important work can have a smooth path and get on with the work that they're doing. So Tear Fund, I'm sure many of you here are familiar with Tear Fund. Tear Fund is a, a brilliant organization working in around 50 countries, working with the poorest of the poor and most specifically working through local churches to equip and empower churches so that they can be working with their communities around issues of poverty and helping to see people lifted out of poverty. And my work with Tear Fund and my work with Arosha have increasingly highlighted to me the importance of us as Christians being engaged in environmental care. It's something that I've been talking about now um, 
probably for some 25 years and just steadily banging away at the drum or banging my head against a brick wall. I'm not quite sure which is the most appropriate. And working to help Christians understand where environmental care is a part of the Christian faith. So it's really encouraging seeing so seeing all of you here, seeing so many turn out. I was reflecting on the years that I've been talking around these issues. And in the past, this kind of topic would have got just a handful of people, the very keen greenies would have turned up. And it's really one of the signs of the times that we are now, as a church, much more interested and much more engaged and recognizing the importance of this issue for, for all of us. So this evening, I want to, to do two very simple things. I want to look biblically and remind us biblically as to why this is something that we should be engaging with as church and give you a bit of an opportunity to be thinking through that biblical material from your own church perspective, thinking, is this the kind of thing that you hear about in your church and how might you be bringing that in? And then we will spend a good amount of time looking at that practical, so what? So then how do we get our churches engaged? And how can we take action and what sort of action should we be taking? How can we respond to the massive challenges that we face? So I know some of you here will have, have heard me give this biblical material before, and that's fine. I hope it's good for you to hear it again and to be reminded and refreshed. But I'm also aware that there are a number of you for whom this might be new. And so I hope this might be a helpful exploration around what does the Bible say about caring for the natural world. Now, what I haven't found out is how the PowerPoint works and whether I've got a clicker or whether someone is doing it. Oh, look at that, as if by magic. Brilliant. And sorry, forgive me. Do I have a clicker or are you doing it from the back? Okay, great. Thank you. Hopefully, it should be fairly obvious and straightforward as I go through. So I want to look at four reasons why we should be caring for, for this environment. I could go through and give you a, a full biblical theology, but I want to simplify it down to four points, which I hope are all pretty basic, but that together provide us with a good picture as to what the Bible says. And the first point is the really obvious one that God made this world and he loves it. I say it's obvious, but sometimes we need reminding. This is where our Bibles start, with that fundamental statement that God is the creator of this world. Now, this isn't about evolution or creationism or any of those sorts of debates. However we think the world came into being, the Bible affirms that God is behind that process. God is the originator of life. God is the creator of this world. And saying yes to life goes through Genesis 1. It's an exploration of Genesis 1. And each chapter, it's divided into six chapters. Each chapter looks at one of the days of creation. And then in case you're wondering if I know that there are actually seven days of creation, the seventh day is the, um, is the conclusion as we head into Easter and resurrection life and Sabbath rest and so on. 
So over the course of last year, I was immersed in Genesis 1 and in that text and thinking it through biblically and faithfully and then also contemporary in thinking about the contemporary application as well. And Genesis 1 is just this wonderful poem and wonderful affirmation that God made this world. And sometimes we forget the significance of that and we move too quickly from God as creator to God as savior and we forget that the two need to be held together. Genesis 1.31, a verse that I'm sure you're all very familiar with, that says that God looked at all that he had made and said it is... Thank you. God looked at each of the individual days, so to speak, that he made. And at the end of each day, he, God looked at what he had created and said it's good. And then at the end of that creation, he looked at all that he had made and said it's very good. My, my rather non-academic translation of that is that God looked at all that he'd made and he said it's fantastic. I love it. Look at this. Look at what I've made. This is amazing. You know, think about when you've made something incredible. You've cooked an amazing dish or you've made something, I don't know, whatever it is that you enjoy doing. You've written a beautiful piece of poetry or painted something or whatever it is. And you go to, to someone who you care about deeply and you say, look at this. Look at what I've made. Isn't it wonderful? And this is what God is doing. God looks at all that he's made and he says, it's fantastic. This isn't a dispassionate God who sort of sits back and says, oh, yeah, that's all right. That will do for the time being till I can think of something better. This is a God who looks at what he's made and he says, it's very good. And in that little statement, we see blown away 2,000 years of bad history, of bad theology that has separated out the, the earthy, the physical, the material from the, the non-physical, the immaterial, the ethereal, however we want to call it, the spiritual, and has said that this sphere is somehow superior to the earthy, physical, material world sphere. And Genesis 1.31 brings those together and says that matter matters to God. David Wilkinson, the, um, the astrophysicist, the theologian from, from Durham, loves saying this. Matter matters to God. God looks at what he has made and it is absolutely precious to him. And we see this in Colossians 1 with the description of that all things have been made by Jesus and through Jesus and for Jesus. Almost as if this world is like a gift from the Father to the Son. Beautiful language there. This world is inherently precious and valuable to God. I was speaking on this at a conference a little while ago, and it was a, it was a residential overnight thing. And a woman came up to me the second morning, and she'd gone home to, she lived nearby because she had a young family. And she said to me that morning before coming back out to the conference, she'd been playing, she had a little toddler, she'd been playing with her son on the floor, making, um, playing with Lego. And she'd constructed this amazing house, sort of castle with turrets and, the, you know, pretty much like what Bishop Tim lives in, this amazing building. And 
she looked at it, and then she looked at her son, this little toddler, and he looked at, the, at what she'd made, and he stood up and toddled over, and you can imagine, can't you? Wham! Knocked the whole thing over. She, she said, I was furious that he'd done that to what I'd made. And then she said, you know, and then I felt God speak to me and say, yeah. And how do you think I feel about how you treat what I've made? And she was actually talking to me with tears in her eyes. And for the first time, she'd gained a glimpse into how God feels, how much he loves this world, how much he's invested into it, poured himself into it. Some theologians, and I explore this a little bit in saying yes to life, some theologians talk about God withdrawing God's self in order to create space for creation to exist within that space, the space of the Godhead. It's beautiful imagery that doesn't allow us to separate out what God has made from God. Yes, it keeps a distinction, but it shows how closely linked God is to his creation very invested in it. And if that's the case, how dare we treat it in the way that we do? If we love God and worship him and want to, want to love him, don't we therefore want to love and value that which is so precious to him? So God has created this world, and I think there's a, a new calling on us as followers of Jesus, as churches, to rediscover God's heart for this world. So many of us have grown up with theologies that have seen the physical world as somehow denigrated, not quite as important, and work that is about looking after this world is, isn't important. It's inferior to, to other more spiritual and religious and worthy undertakings. But I think God wants to break our heart for this world and to give us a, a deeper understanding as to how he sees it and how he looks on it. And I would encourage you after this evening to take some time, maybe tonight or in the following days, during your, your prayer times, to sit in silence and to ask God to open your eyes and to give you a deeper heart for what he has made. And to ask him as you're walking around that he would be showing you things and breaking your heart, giving you a God's eye view of this world that we live in. So God made this world and he loves it. And secondly, he's created us, incredible privilege, he's created us to look after it. Genesis 1, 26 to 28, the most recent NIV translation of that renders it in this way. God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the birds of the air and the, the fish of the sea and the livestock and so on. So that, and the Old Testament scholar Chris Wright says that it's almost as if God had it in God's mind that the final species he created, he would create with the express purpose of looking after everything else that he has made. And doesn't that turn upside down the way that we have traditionally read Genesis 1 
and traditionally understood our role as human beings, particularly during the, the Enlightenment and the thinking that came through there, that the, the environment is there to serve us, isn't it? It's there to make us comfortable. It's there for us to build ourselves a better life. But actually, no surprise, everything about the kingdom of God is upside down. God turns that upside down when we see what has been written there in Genesis 1, that we are there to serve the rest of what God has made. We are the final species created to look after his world. And in case you worry about this word to rule over, just remember God's idea of rulership, of monarchy, when he talked to his kings and how he expected his kings to rule. What would be some of the words that you might use to describe the, the values and the characteristics of, of ruling, his, the, of how God expected, wanted his kings to rule? Service, yeah, thank you. Someone's, pardon? Justice, yeah. Servanthood, stewardship, love, <laughs> yep, double echo there. <laughs> Compassion, yes, all of these words. They're not words that we might think of as, as to do with ruling, are they? We think of subjugation and oppression and what have you. But God's idea of ruling, of ruling this world, is about servanthood, justice, love, compassion, etc., etc. So we have been created to look after what God has made. That is our... It's not just our duty, not just our role, our calling. It's our privilege to do that. Some theologians think about the, um, some theologians see the Genesis 1 and the creation of the world as being depicted like the creation of a temple. And, and if you look at how the physical temple in the Old Testament was created, it reflects that a lot and there are resonances between, between it. And if you go into a temple you know what you will see right in the middle, don't you? You will see the image. You will see an image of whichever god or goddess is worshipped in that temple. And that, of course, is why God said that there are to be no physical images in his temple because we are the image of God. Other people and the wider natural world should look at us and see God reflected in us. I find that a bit of a challenge. I am to represent God to other people and to the wider natural world. So we are God's image bearers, not in a way that leads to oppression, but in a way that leads to love and service and servanthood. But the sad reality, of course, is that thirdly, this world has gone wrong because of us. And the Bible isn't... Um, shy of talking about that. The Bible, particularly when you look in the Old Testament prophets, is very clear that environmental degradation is a direct result of human sin. And it's a direct result of human sin that is around uh, uh, injustice and oppression. Where the people aren't righteous, where they don't follow God, where they don't walk according to his ways, you know that because they don't practice social justice. And when they don't practice social justice, 
one of the results is environmental degradation. And there are various passages in the prophets that hold those three things together really closely. So the Bible knows that when we don't follow God, when we don't look after people, then the land and the wider natural world suffers. And that's what we see today, isn't it? If we just move on to the next slide. There are so many issues that we face in our world today. And one of the things that I explore through saying yes to life is the idea of a wounded world. Each chapter, when we look at the different things that have been created there, we can see, sadly, how we've messed it up with those, whether it's land, trees, light, whatever it is, other creatures, we've messed it up. We live in a wounded world, a huge number of different issues, but just three to highlight for us this evening. The first, um, obviously, is our climate crisis. This picture on your left is a field of chilies, a field of chili plants from a chap who I spent a day with quite a number of years now in central Tanzania, in the poorest part of Tanzania. And he was called Daniel, and I spent a day with him on, on his shamba and his homestead. It's about 12 acres with his wife and his little daughter, Daniela, who got very confused with the present that I'd brought them and thought that my name was Calendar. And <laughs> she called me Calendar all day, which I thought was lovely. So I just let her... <laughs> let her get on with it. So we had an amazing day with Daniel who wanted to show me and the colleague I was traveling with around and show, show us the things that he was growing and his plans for the site. He wanted to grow more papaya trees so that he had enough fruit that he could take to market in order to provide the money that he needed for Daniela going to school and the different things that she needed for school. He was what we would call a subsistence farmer. But actually, he was just an incredibly hard-working person working his land in order to provide for his family. Had a beautiful day, sat out underneath the mango tree. He got his guitar out. He sang us a, a love song that he'd written for his wife. And then he sang 10,000 Reasons, you know, the Matt Redman song. I thought, my goodness, I'm thousands of miles away on the, the floor of the Rift Valley. And here I am singing 10,000 Reasons underneath the mango tree. Who, you never know where you're going to end up. It was a beautiful day, but it was so clear that the land was dying. And this was, these were his chili plants. And all the rest of his land looked like that. And Daniel was caught in this perfect storm of local climate change and global climate change. He was experiencing local climate change because of the poverty of the region, which had meant that everybody had cut down all of the trees in order to provide firewood to cook their food. So there had been mass deforestation along the floor of the once fertile Rift Valley in the area of Tanzania that he was living in. And that had changed the microclimate. I don't need to go into the science around that with trees and rain and all of that. I know you know that. That had changed the microclimate, and so there was no rain. And then he was also suffering the impact of the global climate that's not called global climate crisis, not caused by the poorest of the poor, but caused by the richest of the rich, who, of course, are us sitting in this room and 
millions of others like us. And we know that through the way we've lived and the high amount of energy that we've consumed and the carbon dioxide emissions and other gases that we've produced, we know that we have caused and are causing and will cause global climate change. And Daniel was caught in the middle of that and his land was dying. And he's just one example of millions and millions of people who are suffering the impact of our climate crisis. And it's been really sobering for me, actually, recently, just looking back over, over notes, speaking notes that I've written over the years. Like I said, I've been speaking on this for 25 years, and I've realized that I need to stop talking about predictions because the things that were being predicted many years ago, I'm now talking about as a reality that is happening now. As I look in the, head, the headlines, I get the media, I get a report of the headlines every day. And I look at it and I think, my goodness, this is what we were saying. We're seeing it now. So this is happening. And if we don't take action, it will continue to get worse. So we are caught in a climate crisis that we have to respond to. Accompanying that is an astonishing lack of biodiversity which we're seeing on, a, on a, a huge scale. And I'm sure I don't need to go into all the details of that with you. But I wanted to put that butterfly up rather than the polar bear to remind us that this isn't just happening to species thousands of miles away. This is happening to species in our gardens, in the waterways that are near us, in the fields that surround the cities that we live in. All around the world and very close to home, we are seeing biodiversity loss at an astonishing rate. And these are all creatures that have been made by God. They bear God's fingerprints, as uh, the Greek theologians like to describe it. They, they bear the fingerprints of God, and they're being erased by our actions. And then the third crisis that we're facing is a plastic crisis, isn't it? And we are drowning in plastic. We have huge problems in the oceans, as we know all too well. We are increasingly seeing problems for ourselves. And you may know there's now all sorts of research coming out saying that it's in the food that we're eating, little tiny little micro particles of plastic. It's thought now, there's now studies showing that we're now breathing in plastic. There's so much plastic that it's in the air that we can't see. And who knows the impact that that is going to have on us long term. And then what we're also increasingly realizing is that plastic isn't only a problem for marine environments. It's also a problem for people who are living in poverty. And this is something that Tear Fund has focused on a lot over the last year or so. And we see, as like in this picture here from Pakistan, there are whole communities of people just living with their plastic rubbish because they have nowhere to put it. I just want you to imagine where you live for a moment. Imagine your street, your neighborhood, your community. Imagine if you got home tonight and there was a letter from your council saying they've run into financial problems and they can't do your rubbish or recycling collection anymore. It's now stopping. What would your street look like after a couple of weeks? What would it look like after six months? 
What would it look like after a year if you literally had nowhere to put your rubbish? And this is what is happening in poor communities that don't have the means of proper disposal. Billions of people, something like two billion people in our world, don't have access to proper waste management. And that's causing death. It's causing an increase of diseases such as malarial diseases and diarrheal diseases. It's causing respiratory problems because probably you would end up burning it because that's probably the only way you'd be able to get rid of it. So our plastic addiction is causing a massive problem. And this actually is from a recycling hub that we've been investing into in the slums in Pakistan. And this is one of the areas of work that we're increasingly doing as Tear Fund. And this chap here, they're called the Hariali Hubs. And for a small fee, house owners can get their rubbish collected and it gets sorted out and taken off to different places and recycled and reused. Then the very tiny little bit that can't be reused or recycled in some way then gets properly disposed in a proper way and it provides people and I can't remember his name now such as this chap with a livelihood and it clears up the environment and helps the local neighborhood with the problems of disease that they've been facing it's a really good example of where environment and people go together and we can't separate out environmental issues from people issues because we're so, it's all so linked together. You can't care for the environment without thinking about the people who live in that space, the, the poorest people who, who use that place and the richest people then who use too much of the world's resources globally. And you can't care for people without thinking about the land they live off and the seas they fish in and the air they breathe and so on. So we are causing problems and the Bible does not shy away from that and is very clear on the link between human sin, a lack of justice and environmental degradation. So therefore we have a responsibility to do something about it. But the good news finally is that we don't do it on our own. If we can just get, thank you. And we do that as part of God's plans for salvation. And the good news that we see in the Bible is that God has a future for his world and for his creation. Some of us may have been brought up with a biblical tradition that said that this world is a, a temporary resting place. We're just passing through, just visitors, just visiting this planet. And the world is going to be destroyed and we'll be spending the rest of our days in heaven somewhere on a cloud, possibly playing a harp, who knows? There may be other instruments. But that may have been the picture that you have been brought up with. That actually owes more to Victorian hymnology than it does to anything that we see in the Bible. And the Bible is clear that the heavens and the earth are going to be made new. And the word for that is around being renewed, being transformed. Not destruction. I'm, I haven't got the time to go into uh, the in-depth stuff, particularly around 2 Peter 3 right now, though um, I, it's things that I explore in the different books that are at the table at the back. But the biblical picture of our future hope is an earthy one. It's very physical. Yes, transformed. Absolutely. Not on a world that will look exactly like this one. There is transformation. 
heaven and earth united together. Perhaps the the best picture really is of Jesus' post-resurrection body where there was continuity and discontinuity. There was continuity in that eventually the disciples did recognize him and Jesus was able to eat and to be touched. And yet there was discontinuity. The disciples didn't recognize him and he could go through walls or disappear or appear. And so there's continuity and discontinuity. And we don't know exactly what the future holds, but that seems to be the best way of looking at it. If you want to explore that more, chapter four of saying yes to life, uh, where it um, links to day four around the creation of the sun, moon, and the stars, not the sun, but the stars. I use that chapter as, uh, as an opportunity to explore those pictures around eschatology because a lot of the biblical passages around those sorts of things use pictures of the moon and the stars and so on. So if you want to look more in depth at the biblical material around that, do pick up saying yes to life and have a look at chapter four. But the picture that we have biblically is that God has a plan. God has a future for this world. It isn't just going to be discarded and thrown away. And I want to be a part of that future, that very physical, beautiful future that we see in Revelation 21 and 22, where God dwells with his people. There is no more suffering. There's no more death. There's no more sickness. But it's physical, isn't it? There's, there are trees there. There's a river. It's a, a garden city like some of the garden cities we have here. But a garden city, it's a beautiful bringing together of so many things in that picture. So we have these bookends of a wonderful world that God has made and then an amazing, newly created world that is our future. And our calling is to be a part of that future and to work today to see bits of that future made real today and to live in the light of that future. So all of that together gives us that biblical understanding as to, as to where the, the wider world fits in to our calling and to what it means to be Christians, what it means to be followers of Jesus. And I want to give you an opportunity, maybe just for five minutes, to reflect on that and to think about your own church and to think about where does this sort of teaching feature in your church life? And does it? If not, why not? If, if it does, how often? Where do you see it? Does it come through in the young people's work that happens, in your small groups, in your sermons? Is it reflected in your prayers? How does this relate to the church that you're a part of? So I'm going to give you five minutes just to reflect on that. Uh, with the, why don't you just turn to the person next to you or however you want to do that. Give you a bit of an opportunity to think through that biblical material. And then we'll move on to look more about our churches and how we can respond. Great. Do you want to start to draw your discussions to a close? Wonderful. So how can we get our churches more engaged and what sort of things can we be doing? I want to look at these five points with you. 
Firstly, teach. I hope this might be obvious. I'd love to hear, are any of you up for sort of calling out or, um, well, it will have to be calling out. What, what, what have you been talking about around your churches and this sort of biblical teaching? How much does it feature in your churches? The Forest Church movement has been really helpful. Great. Thank you. Sorry, who's talking? I can't quite see. Creation Tide has been a really useful resource in using the liturgies. And if you don't know about that, you can find that online. Each year there's a different theme and prayers and so on that are put up, sermon ideas. Yeah, so using Harvest as an opportunity to talk about these things. And uh, what now called Green Christian has something called LOAF, Local Organic Animal Friendly and Fairly Traded, is a good way of thinking about the food that we provide at Harvest and at our Harvest meals. Great. So Eco Church has been really helpful to provide sustained help and resources and materials and, and to keep that going in the life of the church. Anyone else want to say anything? Yeah. So trying to increase biodiversity in churchyards by putting aside some areas for conservation, which will then encourage different species and butterflies and so on. Lovely. And using that as a way then of being able to get the church outside and, and teaching off the back of that. Thank you. Anybody have struggles with your church in this area? <laughs> oh, is that too much? <laughs> so the importance of it being part of our children's work in, for helping our churches be relevant because they're learning about it at school and therefore it needs to be part of our churches as well so they can, yeah, so they see how relevant it is. So being told that climate change and environmental care is too political. Yeah, so we've, we've got really good resources, really good things that we can use, and also challenges as well and in helping our churches to engage with this. And I would just really encourage you to make the most of the resources that are there. And of course, Lent this year is a fantastic opportunity for you to be able to do that. And I don't, the, um, sorry, if I can have those materials back again. The Church of England's Lent campaign, thanks, around Live Lent, Care for God's Creation, they're, although they don't necessarily look like it, that they're joined up, they are actually joined up together. So all of the material coming from the Live Lent campaign is taken from, from saying yes to life. And so if you are reading the Archbishop of Canterbury's Lent book as a church, then you can also 
be doing the daily reflections here and they will all tie up really well. And, and I would just encourage you to get your church doing this for Lent. Get them reading the, the Archbishop's Lent book. Get, the, get lots of the copies of the, the daily reflections so that all the individual members can be doing that every day as well as reading the book a chapter each week. And then with your small groups and your sermons so that they're all lined up. We have a perfect opportunity for Lent this year. And so let's make the most of it and use that as a way to be able to get these issues and the, this conversation and the biblical material into our churches. And not only for the adults, but one of these is, uh, this is a children's one for kids. So there's material that kids can use. And then coming as well is going to be a youth resource that accompanies saying yes to life. So you can put your youth group through these things as well. So teaching, teaching, teaching and making the most of the resources that are there to do that. So secondly, if we start off with teaching, secondly, giving. I really believe that where we put our money speaks far more about our values than anything that comes out of our, of our mouths. And we know that, don't we? Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And if we care about issues around poverty and the wider natural world, then let's be making sure that our money talks in that regard as well, both as churches and as individuals. And I would really encourage you to be giving in a regular way to organizations like Arosha and Tear Fund and the other organizations that are out there. All of us, I, I can speak from total experience, all of us depend, all of us organizations depend on regular giving in order to be able to do the work that we do. And for us as Tear Fund, by, by giving regularly, you will be helping people such as Daniel who are caught in such a climate crisis, and you will be helping to support the work that we do with churches working to help people like Daniel. So please consider giving to the work of organizations such as Arosha and Tear Fund, Christian Aid, and so on, others who are working in this area. And if you'd like to look at that more from a Tear Fund perspective, then there's this white leaflet at the back that you can have a look at and we'll tell you a little bit more about how to give regularly to the work that we do. But wherever you give your money, there is a calling on us as Christians to be generous, to be using our money, to be using the amazing blessing, the financial blessing that so many of us have in order to bless others. Then thirdly, pray. I am increasingly convinced that prayer brings about change. And at Tear Fund, we see this in a whole number of different areas. I've got one team in particular who really who pray. They pray regularly. They ask God to speak to them. Over the years, they've been keeping a record of the words that they believe God has said to them and at the start of each year they go back and they go through them and they pray over them uh, and and when I look at them as a team I can see the blessing that is on them and I can see how their work 
uh, is successful might be the wrong word. I'm not quite sure what the word is, effective, because I know that it is soaked in prayer. I recently had the privilege of meeting someone called Christiana Figueras, who is, uh, was a, a leading climate UN negotiator, and she's the woman who led the negotiations around the Paris climate um, agreement that, well, that led to the historic Paris agreement at the Paris talks, and she's the woman who led those through. And she's not a woman, she's not a woman of Christian faith. She may have uh, some sort of faith there, but she's not a, a Christian explicitly. And she said to me, were it not for the faith communities, or she, she said, without the faith communities, there would be no Paris Agreement. And she directly attributed the success of the Paris Climate Talks to the faith communities, particularly the church and to the way that we got together, built a movement, action and prayer went hand in hand. And there was strong prayer that covered the Paris talks with a, a pilgrimage and then a regular weekly prayer all the way through leading up and then prayers during it and so on. And this year we have another opportunity to gather together and pray with the climate change talks that are happening in Glasgow at the end of the year, five years on from Paris. And climate change is increasingly, well, is in the media, is in our public eye, like never before, isn't it? And this year, we know we have got to make a difference and we have got to see the positive action being taken. So Tear Fund, Christian Aid, CAFOD and other organizations are joining together, have joined together at the start of this year to mark this year as a year for prayer for the climate. And I would just love you to join in with that. We need a movement of people praying because I believe that prayer will make a difference. You can find out about that just by going online. You can Google or Ecosia, if you use that as your search engine, Tear Fund, Pray for the Climate, or you can find that as well on other organizations' websites too. Please pray because that is how we will see things change. And let's bring prayer into our churches as well. Um, my eldest daughter has been going to a different church to the one that the rest of us as a family go to. Uh, it's a, an Anglican church as her friends from school have been going there and it has the very classic Anglican prayers going through, you know, the bishop and the queen and the government and praying for this and for that and everything. So she's been learning because that's not our traditional background as a family so she's been learning through all of that and she came back one Sunday at lunchtime really frustrated she said mum she said the prayers so annoy me I said why you know what what's wrong with the prayers and she said well every week whoever's praying up the front says Lord we pray for the we pray for the world she said and then we never pray for the world we pray for people in conflict. We pray for refugees. We pray for people who are hungry. We pray for et cetera, et cetera. All of which is really important, but we never pray for the world. I thought, yeah, you're spot on. <laughs> and she'd pick that up, this, this understanding of the world, and then we go and pray for people and don't actually pray for the world. Would that be true of our churches too? I don't know. Can we be deliberate about bringing the concerns around the natural world into the heart of our prayers and our prayer life as a church, as churches.
And then fourthly, speak out. And this is around advocacy and campaigning and calling on governments and businesses to be putting into place policies and practices that work in favor of the world's poor and the wider natural world rather than working against. This is a massive area, isn't it? But when we look at the problems that we face, we know that they are caused by big systemic issues and big systemic systems. And if we're going to see change, we need to do that final point of the living out in our own lives. But that has to go hand in hand with the big, large scale changes as well. Which is why we need to be speaking to our governments. We need to be talking to our MPs. We need to be lobbying them. We need to be out on the streets. We need to be campaigning. We need to be joining in the, the different movements that have been springing up over the last year or so. And showing our governments and showing our businesses and giving them permission to make right decisions. Telling them that, that we want them to do this, that this isn't going against the electorate or going against the consumer, but that's what we want. Giving them permission to make the right decisions. One of the things we're doing at Tear Fund is running a, a rubbish campaign. This is the most rubbish campaign that Tear Fund has ever run. And it's focusing on plastic. And it's calling on four companies, Coca-Cola, Unilever, Nestle, and PepsiCo, and with some very clear ask, well thought through by our policy team, um, which I won't go into the details of, but it's calling on them to make changes to their, uh, to their practices as businesses. Um, we've been running this through the course of last year and continuing it into this year. We are starting to see the businesses respond to us now, and we're now in communication with them and starting to see some changes in their practice. But we need to keep up the pressure. And I'd really encourage you at the table at the back, please pick up one of these, fill it out, put your name on there, uh, leave it at the back, and then it will get passed back. And it's all part of building a movement that tells those four big plastic uh, polluting companies that we want them to change and we want them to do things differently. So standing up, being prepared to put ourselves on the line, speaking up for those who can't speak for themselves, and then also giving a voice to those who can't speak for themselves so we aren't always speaking for them is all a part of advocacy and campaigning. And we can be doing that in our churches too. We can be getting our churches engaged in these things. And then finally, live it out in our own lives. I first realized when I was a, a younger adult, as I was getting passionate about these issues, that I could have an amazing theology and I could tell government what I wanted them to do and I could tell business what I wanted them to do. But actually, if I wasn't living it out in my own life and making changes in my own life, then I was a hypocrite. And so I began to think through, okay, actually, what do I need to do in order to live in a way that's taking care of this amazing world that God has made? Again, hugely complicated. So many different issues. And just when we think we've found the right way, then something else comes up that makes you think, oh, no, I've been doing this or oh, thinking this is the best way. Actually, now new evidence has shown I need to do something else. I, I am not standing up here to say that it's easy, but 
I would boil it down into these four areas as a way to make it simple. To think about the food that we eat, the way that we get around, the energy that we use, and the things that we throw away, particularly our plastic. And if it all feels too much, you might just take one thing from each of those areas and choose something that you could do to make a difference. So when it comes to food, the biggest thing that we could do, the biggest change we can make, as I'm sure by now you probably know, is to change your diet so that it's predominantly grain and vegetable based. It's not saying that we all have to go vegetarian. It's not saying that we all have to go vegan, though I know many of you here will want to do that, and that's brilliant. The main thing is about reducing the amount of meat and dairy that we eat. So turning our diet on its head so that we eat predominantly vegetables and grains. And if we decide we do still want to eat meat, then maybe that's just once or twice a week. And um, I can see some of your faces as I'm saying that. Some of you are thinking, yeah, that's fine, I'm there already. And others of you are, ooh, you're joking, aren't you? But these are some of the steps that we need to make. And we can do it gently. You could take one day where you don't eat any meat. And when that feels okay and normal, then go on and do two days and three days and, until you've got used to it. Travel. Biggest thing we could do here would be to cut down on the amount of flying that we do. And really being prepared to challenge ourselves hard on how easily or how quickly we might get into a plane and fly somewhere. Now, I'm preaching this to myself as well as someone at Tear Fund. You can imagine it's a constant challenge as to how do I decide what trips I should do. And I've been really trying to push myself and really trying to practice what I preach and not fly too much. I um, really restrict the amount of flying that I do. There are some times when I do need to, but it's something for us as a whole organization, actually. We're currently going through an exercise where we're mapping the flights that we took last year and we're challenging ourselves to look at how much we can reduce this year. Because we know as much as we need to fly to operate as an organization, we also need to challenge ourselves to fly less. So maybe if we fly every year on holiday, might we be prepared to cut that down so that we only fly every other year? Or maybe we might only fly every five years. Or maybe we might be in a situation with no family abroad or anything where we think, okay, actually I could decide I'm not going to fly again because I don't need to. We've inherited a culture that just sees flying as our right and our privilege, haven't we? And I'm realizing I have too. And I'm realizing we're in a new normal where we can't continue as we have. And we need to do things differently. Then energy, I'll do these last two more quickly and then we can get into some discussion. Energy, switch to a green energy supply if you haven't done so already. That's the simplest and most effective thing that you can do in order to make a difference in that area. And then waste, thinking particularly about your plastic. Could you make a, a plastic pledge never to take a single-use plastic water bottle again? unless you find yourself in a situation where you absolutely have to and you can challenge yourself as to what that situation might be, particularly if you're not flying. 
So thinking about our single-use usage of plastic and cutting that out, it might be deciding to carry a, a water bottle with us or a keep cup or ditching the... Um, the soap, the liquid soap, and buying, going back to good old-fashioned soap bars, ditching the shampoo and using, again, shampoo bars and conditioner and so on. Once you start to look into it and think about it, it's actually really quite obvious. And you begin to realize just how much we've been sucked in by our culture. Um, and we just do things without thinking. But finding alternatives to the amount of plastic that we use. So living it out, thinking about our food, our travel, our energy, and our waste. And I want to get us thinking about that together in a moment. But let me tell you about the resources that are here on the, the table there at the back. Saying yes to life, you know all about that, so I don't need to tell you about that. Um, you are the, the, the first people publicly that this has been sold to. Exciting moment. So make the most of it and pick up your copy while you can. That is there at the back. Um, I, I just, I don't want to talk about this too much, but I'm so excited about this. The, the exploration of Genesis 1 and the different days of creation and the opportunity to, to explore that and to look from a faith perspective and then also the contemporary application. I enjoyed it hugely and I hope you'll enjoy reading it and thinking about what's in there. And then just living faith and community in an age of consumerism is an exploration of how do we live well as followers of Jesus in our consumer society. The problems that we face today, environmentally, poverty-wise, and often in our churches as well, are because we are part of a consumer society. And how do we follow Christ well? What are the impacts of consumerism on our faith and how can we withstand that? How can we be aware of it? How can we harness the good within consumerism? How can we live well in today's culture is the exploration that's in that. And then L is for lifestyle, Christian living that doesn't cost the earth. It's a really practical look at the kind of issues that we've looked at today and lots more. It, some of you will know this already because it's been around a long time, but is now in an all-new, rewritten, updated version. And it goes through the alphabet and takes an issue for each letter. So B is for bananas and looks at issues of global trade. Um, I won't go through the whole of the alphabet. You can work that out and see if you can think of what X is for, and it's not xylophones, and what Z is for. But it basically takes the, goes through the gamut of issues that we face in our world, has a bit of biblical material, a good look at what the issue is, and then finishes with two or three very clear action points so that you can really go away and do something about it. Each chapter is very short. It's what I sometimes call a toilet book. Depending on the length of your sitting, you may uh, get through a chapter. I couldn't, I couldn't tell. You'll have to tell me whether that works or not. But each chapter is very short, so it's very accessible. And Exactly as Bishop Tim said at the beginning, for all that I hope these are interesting and I hope that this talk has been interesting, it's been a waste of 
battling through the wind and the rain if it doesn't lead to practical action. And so these things, the books are here for you to be able to take away the things that we, we're hearing about and talking about this evening and really be continuing or starting to live them out and take them on in your own lives. And there's lots in there as well helping you to think about getting this into your churches as well. So, when we draw to a conclusion, please do come and see me at the table at the back. Don't leave me standing there on my own. Come and see me and come and have a look at the resources and fill out the different things that are there. But I'd like you, again, to turn to the person next to you or get into a group. I don't mind how you do it. And think through those five points that are up there. How can you, in your church, if you want to just go back to the... Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. How can you help your church be engaged in these five different areas? Are there things that your church is really good at? Are there, is there one particular thing that you would like to go back and help your church to engage with? Is there something that resources at the back or elsewhere would be helpful to help you in one of those areas? So take a bit of time with the person next to you and then we're going to come back for some final questions or comments and hear from each other. Do you want to um, come back to order again? Wonderful hearing all of your discussions and hearing the buzz. Thank you so much for interacting and being willing to talk to the person next to you. I hope that wasn't too scary. Bishop Tim is going to sort of stand alongside me as well, just for if there are questions that relate specifically to the diocese or to some of those things, and we're going to field things together. But it would be great to have a, a mixture, any specific particular questions you've got or any comments that you would like to make. Yeah, we've got a lady at the back. When, when will your books that are all paper be on Kindle and can we... They're, yeah, they're all available. As they're e all available already. on yep. Kindle. Yep, they are. Yeah, so you can go on online and you will find them there. Incidentally, they reckon that uh, it's about 100 books. Um, so you need to have read about 100 books for a, a Kindle to be uh, sort of sustainable. So if you have a Kindle, make sure you're an avid reader and read lots of books. And once you've read about 100, then you're doing better than reading a hard copy. Just an interesting stat. Resources in this diocese in relation to Winchester Green Week and the advocate for Winchester Week, Green Week is here amongst us. Uh, it's run by the churches together in Winchester, uh, September, October time. That has really brought the whole uh, uh, subject up the agenda in a very good way. Brilliant. Winchester Green Week, do you all know about that? Is there anyone here who would... Do you want to... <laughs> Hi everyone, I'm uh, the champion for climate justice for Winchester Churches Together and we had our second Green Week last autumn and the one for this year will be, I think it's about the 27th of September to the 4th of October, the last week of Creation Tide with a big festival at the cathedral, the Green Hampshire Harvest Weekend to finish it all off.
um, come and talk to me if you want to find out more. Lovely. Thank you. Should have said that was a, it's a collaborative initiative between churches, businesses, the city council, um, NHS Trust, individuals, any organisation that's already camping, campaigning on these issues because we realise we have got to all pull together on this. It's not just uh, we will find the right way and we'll do it our way, thank you very much. It's about all having a perspective that's useful. So um, I just wanted to make a point similar to the one the gentleman at the back made, that um, for my church we found the things coming from the diocese really helpful in a way to legitimise it as something mainstream within the church. So rather than just something that a few of us are really interested in and we're the environmentals and the, and the green people saying, look at this, do this, okay, we still do that, but it's for everybody and it's accepted. It's what the bishop is telling us to do this, look at this. It makes a difference and it, it just makes it really helpful for us to be able to do things um, that we're doing through Eco Church and so on. So it's, it's become a lot more of a focus over the last couple of years in our church and it's been really positive that it's just become something for everybody to do and more and more people are seeing it's a part of faith and, and not just a small thing on the side. Yeah. Brilliant. So just to add to that, I used to be a member of the Green Party. I was so committed. And Sally and I were um, part of a, a pressure group within the Green Party to get it to be more democratic. We used to go away for odd weekends uh, and talk about green. I mean, it was, you know, th there are very interesting people who live in this country. Um, Yes, thank you. Um, but that was, I think, when I was still very young and passionate, and I still am very passionate, not quite so young, about these things. And one of the really exciting events was, for me was when we changed the four marks of mission in the Anglican Communion to the five marks of mission. And I actually went over to Wales, where the ACC were making that decision. And Archbishop Guitari was then chairing the ACC that made the decision to include the fifth mark of mission. And I think that fifth mark of mission has slowly but surely been seeping its way into the life of the church. And I think you'll see that the five marks of mission are going to return as ways of articulating what a mission-shaped church looks like. And I think the fifth mark will be the most important one that we need to lead with so that other people understand what the rest are all about. So it's a great time for bishops to stand up, as you say, and be counted and say this is what we believe in and what we're committed to. And we do have a way of explaining that from a theological perspective, but also we're trying to live it. The fifth mark of mission is creating, creation care, if you like, as simple as that. So you're going to have to go and look up the five marks of mission, aren't you now? <laughs> Thank you very much for, for this talk. Um, it was very, um, very nice. Um, I remember well, um, when you were talking at St. Paul's a few years ago, so you probably got me into eco-church because of that. Um, one thing I wanted to mention, which I think we as a church and uh, as individuals um, should also do, is um, divest from fossil fuels. Um, I think that um, sounds very simple, but it makes a huge difference. So if, if we have some money and save it somewhere, we should put it where it is uh, saved in a, in a positive way so that it doesn't actually cause damage to our world. Um, 
and I think I would love if our churches would do more of this uh, as, um, as a church, not just individuals. And I hope that the Anglican church and, and every other church as well would just get on with it. I think I don't understand anymore why we still put the money into fossil fuels. I don't understand it. Thank you. Um, we are getting on with it. In fact, the Church of England is leading the way in the way that uh, investments are being uh, either withdrawn or being threatened in um, those fossil fuel uh, industries. So please be proud of being Anglican, if you are an Anglican here tonight, um, and realize that the Church of England is, has stuck its neck out. We have not totally withdrawn from fossil fuel industries because we want to have a voice to pressurize people but our small amount of money compared to the other billions that people have got in there um, is having an impact. And pray in particular for one of our leading bishops who's involved in that, uh, and that's Bishop David of Manchester. He really is ruthless when it comes to negotiating with some of these industries, and he has had a big impact. So remember him in your prayers. Pray for the Church of England to stick to its guns. You are not speaking about things that we ought to do, you're speaking about things we're already doing and we're going to carry on doing them. And if you want to look into that a little bit more, if you have a look online at something called the Transitions Pathway Initiative, you'll see part of what the, the Church of England is doing around that and what it's a part of. When it comes to individuals, I absolutely agree. In um, L is for lifestyle, M is for money, is an, is an exploration, a bit of a biblical look at money and then thinking about what we do with our own money. And I make the point in there that it's not just about how much we give, but it's about what we do with the money that we keep and that we save as well. And if we're using, uh, trying our best in every aspect of life to be taking care of this amazing world, then we need to be doing the same with our money as well and making sure that it's invested well. So thank you. It's a really important point. I don't necessarily expect an answer to this question today, but I want to pose it nevertheless. Um, when the diocese is replacing doors and windows in vicarages and rectories, will it be rethinking its approach to the use of UPBC? <laughs> I'm glad you're not expecting an answer from me for that one. I don't know, Ruth, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> um, perhaps you should say what the issues are so that the colleagues who need to hear that, and there's a couple of archdeacons listening very carefully. <laughs> Ooh, Where are they? Got a... <laughs> oh, they're both gone. Um, <laughs> What, what are the issues about uh, what you're raising? Because it could be one of those complex things which, where the solution is worse than the original idea. So can you tell us a bit more? Because one of the things you ought to know that we are doing, and that is that we made a huge investment on solar panels, and we were leading yep. the way on that. Um, and if there's something else that we can improve on that's straightforward. Yeah, in terms of UPVC, first of all... Um, Contrary to the views years ago when it was first used, um, it, it's not the brilliant material that it was first thought to be uh, in terms of longevity. Uh, and secondly, there comes a point, however distant in the future, when it will need to be disposed of. Um, and that is going to be a major problem when it starts happening on a large scale.
Um, and the third point I would make is uh, the technology surrounding wood in construction has improved so much over the last few years um, that that should be seriously considered as an alternative in many situations where the default is almost to UPVC without any questioning. Thank you. Great. I suggest we take one or two more questions. Yep. Okay. Uh, this one Comments. is probably not a lot less difficult to answer, but I think it's a really important one. I'd be interested, Ruth, as to whether or not you know of any work in this area. So if I take an example of tobacco advertising, tobacco is you know, recognised from the evidence it's really bad, and so the advertising's banned. And yet things like AstroTurf has increased sales by 600% in the last few years. There's advertising for hot tubs. There's advertising for all kinds of things that are incredibly bad environmentally. So is there any point or is there any strategy to get to a point where we can actually be arguing that advertising restrictions should apply to things that are damaging to the environment in the same way they would be applying to tobacco? So I, I don't know of any specific move, coordinated effort. If anybody does, you could wave your hand at me and we could hear from you because part of the beauty of this kind of thing is that there might be others who know much more than I do about something. But I was struck, I tweeted a picture the other day of a, a company that it's, I just saw the advert on the train and it said, swap trains for, for planes. And I thought, that's just shocking. With everything that we know about our climate crisis, that's completely the opposite way that way to the direction we need to be going in. So I just tweeted it and put it up on Facebook and said, you know, why are we doing that? And someone said to me, we should take that to trading standards or to, or to the advertising authority. And, uh, and it's in my mind at some point that I think that actually that would be a great thing to do because maybe that would make a case. Actually, if you're advertising or pushing something that is directly harmful to the environment, then it could go against something within the advertising, um, whatever they're called, standards, you know who I mean, authority. So uh, that just makes me think of that, but I don't have an answer. I don't know of a movement as, as such that's working towards that. Well, let's st if we take this lady here and then we'll take two final points or questions. Over okay. Uh, basically, I want to make an observation on um, what you said was a problem in looking at our church as an example. We're a very active church, and I think one of the difficulties is priorities. So um, two of us are here. We've been really passionate about green, but it's trying to get the church engaged because everyone's so busy, like Alpha, for instance, is happening at the moment. There's so much that uh, Night Shelter, we're a very busy church, so it's resources. And it's not that people don't care. It's just like if you overload a church, they just can't get the focus. The one area we've made a huge... Oh, sorry. And the other areas, our church has a history of spirituality and not that God's matter matters. And a new recent change, a new vicar, has galvanized a very quiet green movement by my colleague got on board with Green Week. And I'm doing more on the ecosystem with bumblebees and love all that sort of stuff. 
And just going to the talks, I got so engaged because getting the understanding. And from that, it moves on to this speak out is an area that you address, but the area I find most effective is spheres of influence, is that I'm not going to be demonstrating the, sh the streets or um, writing letters. Where I find my greatest sphere of influence is locally. So near Basingstoke, there's um, over 3,000 houses going up. Um, we're talking to the parish council, we're talking to our community association. At Green Week, there were many non-church people coming. So our yeah, sorry, linking back, our church has sometimes been a bit insular, inward-looking, and this whole thing of green is an opportunity not only for outreach, but getting church not seen as weirdos, but doing things that everyone resonates with. So working with the school, the parish council, and in Basingstoke and Dean, there's a climate change officer, and with them putting a headline saying climate crisis, I contacted her, so speaking out, and she's now got a collaboration from, I think, six other groups who set up green, and we've got a little hub network across Hampshire and Andover area. And we're working together. And this gentleman here is working with Eastleigh Borough Council. So I think spheres of influence is speaking out is very much in your local patch. You can make a difference. So I've got the um, developers of this big estate on the green issues of planting biodiversity and also hopefully the designers getting the solar panels in. And I think that makes a big difference. Yeah, it's a really good point to be working with others that are around us, Green Week. Your Green Week being a brilliant example. And we can make so much difference working together with others. I was part, many years ago, part of starting up Transition Chichester, which got me engaged with all sorts of other green movements and green groups in my local area. And one of the things that I've found with Eco Church is that as churches get more engaged environmentally, they always get more active in their local community. And it just seems to go hand in hand. And with your first point, you're right. There are competing priorities. Sometimes we don't have the capacity to do lots of extra things. So let's look at where we can do the things that we're doing, but broadening our perspective and broadening how we do it. So our church prayers is a classic example. It's not asking us to do anything more than we're doing already, but it's asking us to have a broader perspective. So often it's about doing the things we do already, but with a different pair of glasses on. Okay. We're a predominantly based vegan food offer um, and we also have a plastic free retail store. So if you've never used a shampoo before, a shampoo bar before, or beeswax wraps, or want to come and pick up a new keep cup, um, you can come and do that there. So what are you called? Open House Deli. And where are you based? We are based on Middlebrook Street in the old post office, if people know where that is, um, by Poundland. Brilliant. And a great way, great way to support... Oh, a great way to support local business and amazing food. Brilliant. Hi. Um, I wasn't prepared to say anything tonight, but um, thank you so much. It's been it's, it's wonderful what I'm hearing tonight. It's nice to meet you. And it's so wonderful we are here all together, different ages, different spares, different history. I'm Italian, so I come from the old Roman Catholic 
whatever. And um, so I'm glad to be part of uh, Church of England for many reasons. Great vicar here. Um, There's one thing, uh, Green is lovely to hear all the solutions, all the ideas, but there's another thing I would like to mention, and it's please, please, and this is my pray for, for this year. You know, during Lent time, all of you be vegan. I promise you, the first two weeks, you will feel great. Not only following that, you will start to feel part of the earth. And after that, you will be embraced by God. It happened to me. It happened to me. Trust me. God is embracing me. Bless you. Bless you all. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. And Lent actually is a really good time to try some of these things that might feel different to us. For us as a family, it was Lent that, that kind of finally got us pretty much away from meat. My, younger da- my youngest daughter said to me, could we do a, a meat-free Lent? And we'd been cutting down the amount of meat that we ate for quite a long time, so we were kind of on that trajectory anyway but it came from her initiative so I said well okay but let's look at the recipes together and the vegetables and so on so we did that and doing that over six weeks I I, different ones of us in the family do sometimes still eat meat others of us don't at all but it was taking that Lent period that kind of broke the back of it and got us into a different pattern so I would really advocate for using Lent in that way you could do it as a, a plasticless lent as well as another thing I've done. Right, I think we probably ought to draw to a close. R- Ruth, thank you so much. I think we'd like to show our normal kind of appreciation. especially grateful that for 25 years you've just carried on thank you for your faithfulness and for your commitment and your testimony has brought in so many other people with you now so uh, the lord sustain you and keep you going particularly through this year when you'll be doing many of these events but we're privileged for you to be with us first so i hope all the books have gone two left right (laughs) Um, just one or two final comments I'm not a very churchy person because I think part of the issue about being a Christian is getting stuck into society if your church doesn't shift so what? go out there and get involved we are citizens of this nation Let's make a difference as Christians to the society that we belong to. Our responsibility as citizens of the kingdom of God is to change the world in the way we live. We'll take the church with us. But it's a Christian movement. It's not just a church movement. Am I saying dangerous things? You know, it's Christians who get together who make the church. But as a bishop, my responsibility is to be a citizen that other people can say, I'd like to be like that. So my public responsibility is my primary role as a leader 
of Christians who gather together as churches. So I hope that you will be committed, as I am, to being a Christian in the world because God loves it. And it really does matter. We're not going to go to heaven without our bodies. There won't be a heaven without earth. So we might as well get used to how God's going to do something with this earth to make it livable in forever. And we're part of the answer as well as the problem. So I think there are exciting times ahead for Christians who want to get stuck in and be part of what God is doing. And at this time, we can be part of the answer and be those who make a difference. But we are a bit old tonight, if I might put it like that. I'm in my 60s now, so I can say that. Our young people are watching us. They really are. And it's our chance to say, we may have got it wrong. We're going to try and do better. Because they need that from us, really. Um, if you like events, and if you like events that are helping us think through what's going on at the moment about our climate and what we should do about it, then Joe Crocker, who just stood up a moment ago, uh, gave me this leaflet to say there will be in the Wessex Centre on the 7th of March, a Saturday, at 9am, a half day with Christian Aid, who are going to bring together some of the perspectives that we've been talking about. So if you've had a glimmer of what it's all about and you want more, um, go on the 7th of March and then go on the 7th of April. And, and let's really get teed up with all the resources and the groups that are helping us at the moment. Uh, and uh, uh, let's see what um, the Lord is saying to us. So there are a few leaflets at the back. Is that right, Joe? And pick those up as well. So um, as a diocese, we have not made a great strategy out of the eco-environmental issue because it's a policy. This isn't something we're going to suddenly do for a short while. This is who we are. We're called to live differently. So if you wonder why we're having this kind of meeting, it's because it's part of who we are in this diocese. We just need to get better and deeper and more green in the way that we're going ahead. So if you are thinking about how to make a difference and lead others, then that BCM a training program might be just for you. And I hope that some of you will think about that. And the first 20, as I say, will be able to lead the way on that and lead us all as we go forward. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for Ruth. We ask that you'll give her during this year strength and wisdom, insight and understanding, energy and resilience, and that sense of you keeping everything fresh and lively as she talks about these vital issues for the future of our planet, for the future of what we are called to be with you in the creation. We pray for ourselves that we will be committed as Christians who gather in churches, as citizens who vote and who uh, work in this nation, and as individuals who can make decisions that will make a difference day by day. We pray that you'll help us to be faithful followers of Jesus, who gave his life for this world, that there might be resurrection for all things. And so we commit ourselves to you tonight, and we ask that you'll be with us. Fill us with your spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, and help us to follow Jesus into that new and wonderful future. In Jesus' name.